Hey, Angel Donovan with Dating Skills Podcast here. Today, we're looking at some really practical frameworks and approaches to keep relationships healthy. We're going to be looking at the extreme situation again. We've done this a couple of times recently. We're looking at polyamory and talking about some tools that have been devised to work with these complex relationships, frameworks, boundaries, rules, and other practices that make things a lot easier. And if they work for polyamory and multiple relationships, then they also work for single monogamous relationships very well also and can increase the quality of our relationships. Today we'll also get into jealousy quite a bit because it's a big topic when it comes to polyamory and how to move relationships into polyamory from various other situations, other starting places, and much, much more. Today's guests are Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert. They have many years of experience themselves and have multiple partners, up to five or so at any one time. They wrote a book called More Than Two, A Practical Guide to Ethical Polyamory recently. It was just published at the end of 2014 and it made a big, big hit in the polyamory community for doing what it says, being the most hands-on, practical guide that has been written yet on the subject. So we love practical stuff on Dating Skills Review, anything that's easy to implement, and I called them on to talk about all of this stuff. Get to the show notes, links to everything we mention on the show, and Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert at datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick the episode out there. To get all of that in your email inbox, just go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and there you'll have it. Now let's get into today's interview. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Franklin and Eve, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, glad to be here. (laughs) So give us a bit of a backstory behind what you guys do and who you are. How old are you? Where do you live? And what kind of relationship lifestyle do you have? Well, so I'm Eve Rickert, and I live in Vancouver, Canada. I am 39. And um, I'm polyamorous, which means that I um, am open to having multiple romantic partners. I currently live with my husband here in Vancouver. I am involved uh, with Franklin in a long-distance relationship, although he spends a lot of time up here. And there's another woman um, down in Washington State who I've been seeing for about three years and uh, currently see a few times a year. I think you've been seeing her for almost four years now, haven't you? Mm, three years. Wow. Yeah, March 2012. Uh, cool. Great. And how long have you been polyamorous? Has this been a, a lifelong thing or is it something that... Looking back, I date my first polyamorous experience to high school, but of course I didn't have a name uh, for it at the time or a framework that we could fit it into. So it ended up sort of spiraling outward into teenage drama. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I had monogamous relationships throughout my, my 20s. And then um, in about 2004, I'd been with the man who had become my husband for about four years. And we decided then um, to open our relationship and started um, exploring different ways of doing that. I finally started another relationship in 2008. And that was when we sort of finally actually became practicing polyamorous people. And then he 
he started a new relation, two new relationships actually about a year after that in 2009. So I have been ideologically polyamorous for about 11 years and functionally polyamorous for about seven years. Great. Great. Thank you. And Franklin, how? Yeah, I'm Franklin Vo. I'm uh, 48, 49. I'm 49 now. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how old I am. And I am also polyamorous. I have been polyamorous for my entire life. I've actually never been in a monogamous relationship in my life. So that's kind of interesting. When was your first relationship? So I took two dates to my high school senior prom when I was in high school. Seriously? Everyone's like, that's cool. <laughs> like, who's done that? That's like a pretty standout thing to do. It raised a few eyebrows. and this It probably got you into trouble. Um, actually, surprisingly, it didn't. But uh, it did definitely raise some eyebrows. And this was in 1984. So there was no language about it. You know, nobody was doing this. There was no poly community or anything. So people really didn't know quite how to deal with that. And then when I was 19, I met the person who uh, I ended up being married to for 18 years. And uh, she identified as monogamous, even though she also had other lovers. But she and I were together for 18 years. And I had other partners in that time. There was uh, one other partner that I had for 10 of those 18 years. We divorced about 10 years ago, and right now I am in Portland, Oregon, and I have five partners, including Eve here. I live with one of my partners, and my other relationships, unfortunately, due to a long, complicated chain of events, uh, are all long distance. Is this typical polyamory? Because both of you are doing long distance things. You do tend to see long distance relationships in polyamory, I think, a lot more often than in monogamous relationships. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is that because relationships can be a lot more flexible in what they look like and um, they don't all have to be on what we call the relationship escalator. So the relationship escalator is this idea that there's sort of one particular trajectory that all relationships follow. You meet, you start dating, you have sex, you fall in love, you move in together, get married, have kids and die basically. Uh, So in monogamy, it tends to be assumed that when you're dating, you are looking for someone to be on the escalator with. Um, Whereas in polyamory, you see a lot of, you do see escalator relationships in polyamory, but you also see a lot of off escalator relationships where people sort of design their own way of doing things, which means that long distance can become a lot more feasible because you are not necessarily looking for someone to move in with or to have kids with. They're not the only person you're having sex with. So you're not only having sex twice a year when you see them. And I think the other reason for it is that um, it's harder to find compatible partners because uh, if you're looking only for polyamorous people, your dating pool is dramatically restricted. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. In my early days of dating multiple people, I was also, I had a lot of long distance relationships from the places I'd lived and the relationships remained and you move on and you invest in your life where you are and new relationships spring up and then you see the other ones as kind of like holiday (laughs) relationships, I guess. Mostly. Is that part of it also? It can be. That certainly happened with me. I was living in Florida for many years. And uh, at the time I was living with two of my partners and I was like right down the road from a third partner. And then I was a minority partner in an electronics firm and the company moved its headquarters to Atlanta. So I moved to Atlanta with the company and all of a sudden now all my relationships are long distance. I didn't want to end those relationships just because I was leaving town. And in fact, um, I'm still partnered with two of those three people. But then the company ended up running into financial trouble. And it turns out that a person who is a brilliant PhD from MIT, who is a great inventor, is not necessarily a good to run a company. So that happens yes, sometimes. Yes, it does. So the company drove into the ground. And I had actually started a long distance relationship while I was in Atlanta. 
with a person who was in Portland. So I ended up moving up to Portland after that company cratered. Excellent, excellent. One of the questions I think people at home might have is how often do you communicate with these long distance partners? Are these kind of intense communication? Because five partners is quite a few to juggle with work and everything else that's going on in life. So could you just give people like an idea of like, are there a range of different relationships you have and how intense is the communication or non-intense as it may be? There's a huge range. Even I are long distance, but we see each other a lot. In fact, I'm this month I'm up here in Vancouver more than I'm down in Portland. And um, we also work together and we own a couple of companies together. So as you can imagine, we are constantly in mm. communication with each other. We have to be. But some of my other partners, like I have a partner in the UK, she usually comes out to the US or I'll go out to the UK a couple of times a year and we'll spend some time together. But in the spaces in between, we will talk to each other every week, every other week, but we're not constantly in touch with each other. And she has other partners, of course, out there as well. So she is not relying on me and I'm not relying on her for all of our sexual outlet or relationship needs or whatever. Is that phone calls, Skype calls, or just emails? Emails, Skype calls, texting. Texting is awesome. Uh, if you have long distance relationships, especially if you have more than one, get an unlimited texting plan. <laughs> or, or is it WhatsApp? Uh, I've never used WhatsApp, actually. I hear it's a cool thing, but I've just never used it. I'm on so many social media things that, you know, it's like I don't have time for one more. Yeah. And well, like he and I use Gchats all the time because mm-hmm. I have unlimited texting to uh, the US, but I don't think you have unlimited texting to Canada. So we just do everything on Gchat. And I live with my husband. So of course, I see him almost every day, except when he's over at his girlfriend's place. But honestly, because my husband and I both work outside the home, and as Franklin said, Franklin and I own two businesses together. Probably I communicate with Franklin more because from the time I wake up to the time we go to bed at night, like we're in constant text communication, whether it's personal stuff or mostly business stuff. Mm-hmm. So business is our love language. Yeah, well, yeah, work, work is one of our love languages. So you guys have written a book, which is doing pretty well, more than two. And it's kind of heralded as a very practical look at polyamory. And uh, we love practical stuff here at Dating Skills Podcast. That's kind of what we always try to get to. So that's why I have you guys on. So I'd just be interested, what got you writing books about this? And, and where did this come from? I wanted to speak to the practical side of things really quickly because I know a lot of your readers are probably not, or your listeners are probably not polyamorous. And um, we have been told by many people and including a lot of our Amazon reviews that the book is just really great general relationship advice for any style of relationships. We've had monogamous people tell us that it's helped them. We've had people say it's helped them in their business relationships. It's helped them in their relationships with their kids. So we almost shot ourselves in the foot by naming it a book on polyamory when it turns out that people are really appreciating it across the board for relationship advice. Absolutely. That's actually another reason I wanted you guys on. Do you want to talk about the history of the, how the book got yeah. done? So um, what happened was I, when I started doing polyamory, um, I started doing this kind of stuff in the 80s. There was no poly community. There was no sort of relationship norms. There were no role models. There was no language. So I was making it up as I went along, right? And I didn't think there was anybody else out there like me. So I got a lot of things wrong and I made a lot of mistakes and I screwed up a lot of things. And some of the mistakes that I made really ended up hurting people who were close to me. So in the mid nineties, I started writing a website and I started putting a lot of the stuff that I had learned about polyamory up on the website. I wasn't really writing for anybody else. I was writing for like the younger version of me, the me 10 years ago, who was really screwing things up. And the website just exploded. It was one of the first sites on the internet about polyamory, and it became hugely popular. 
which was not anything that I really had ever expected. And in the early 2000s, people started emailing me and saying, so when are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? I was like, okay, cool. I can write a book. I could totally do that, right? So I bought a book on how to write a nonfiction book. Um, and it said, you know, you have to approach publishers and they want to be involved in the writing. So you need to do a sample chapter and send it out. And I sent out all of these query letters and I did everything you're supposed to do. And everybody said, no, we are not interested in a book about how to do polyamory. If you want to do a memoir, we would love to publish that, but we're not interested in a book about polyamory. So I was like, all right, well, that sucks. So I sort of shelved the, the uh, project for several years, actually. And then I started dating Eve. Yeah. And I also, at that point, we met in 2012. So I had been poly for about four years. And for about a year before that, I had started keeping my own blog with a view to eventually writing a book of my own. And what was happening was that I was seeing there were certain ideas about polyamory and certain things that I felt needed to be said that weren't being said in the books that were available. I mean, Franklin was saying some of them on his site and his blog. At that time, I had not met Franklin in person. And so I had this sort of baby idea of writing a book. And then Franklin and I started dating in mid-2012 and um, discovered that we had a lot of really compatible ideas and we were both writing about this stuff. And we worked together on a, an essay um, that he was invited to write for an anthology and discovered that we worked together really well. And so one thing led to another and we decided that we should combine these ideas we have of writing a book and do it together. So we did a crowdfunding campaign and... Um, oh, cool. Where was that? Was that Kickstarter or somewhere else? On Indiegogo. Okay. Is that because they're more open-minded? Kickstarter would not take us. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. They saw it as self-help and um, they don't permit self-help books. Uh, okay. Yeah. So we did an Indiegogo and that got us enough money to actually start our own publishing company, which is one of the companies we own now. Just out of interest, what was your campaign and how much did it just as an evaluation of how interested people are in this and how? We got about 450 backers and we raised about $24,000. Nice. Congratulations. Plus we raised another 6000 independently of, of that with private sponsors. So about 30000 total. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that has been really great because that's given us a fan base that has helped us promote the book as well. So we holed up in a, a cabin for six weeks and um, shut the world out and wrote a book. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, um, Franklin has now written the book that the big publishers originally wanted him to write. He's written his memoir mm -hmm. and it's called The Game Changer and it comes out in September. And um, it's just gone to the designer and it's really good. Cool. Maybe we can have you guys back on to talk about that later. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So the memoir, I guess, is about your polyamory activities. That's the main feature of it. Cool. All right. Excellent. Thanks for the back. It's always interesting to hear how you got into your whole topic and everything. Eve, basically, I wanted to start up off with the healthy relationship topic, just as a more general level. Like, what is a healthy relationship for you guys? How do you look at that? Well, well. We, actually, we actually define that in our book because we that was something we felt like we see a lot. People talk a lot about healthy and unhealthy relationships, but they never define that. Um, and I kind of want to look at the book. <laughs> You're like, damn, I haven't got my definition handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to, uh, when we were struggling with this, and it took us quite a while to sort of circle around this idea and figure out exactly what we're getting to. And we found that actually with a lot of the things in the book is it really took some, some time to work out precisely what we wanted to say. Because everybody thinks they know what a healthy relationship looks like, right? But, you know, how do you actually define it? But the things that we actually finally ended up getting drilling down to are relationships where... People are empowered. People's autonomy is respected. Uh, the people are not trying to control each other. What else did we put in there? I think we assume that people are in their relationships because they value 
love and intimacy and and connection and they want their partners to be happy mm-hmm. which is actually not true of all relationships there are unhealthy yeah. relationships out there definitely we believe that a healthy relationship is one where nobody has to sacrifice their core selves i mean certainly you make sacrifices to be in relationships but there are certain sort of lines within yourself that define key areas of of who you are and what you are able to give and what you're not able to give and you shouldn't have to push beyond those. You shouldn't have to feel like you are giving up yourself towards your core self and your integrity in order to be mm-hmm. in a relationship. Would it be safe to say you mean like your identity doesn't really change? The core of your identity? Or? Your relationships change you. So that's not exactly what it is. But that you you shouldn't have to, say, violate your own consent to be in a relationship. You shouldn't have to... Um, you shouldn't... So. You shouldn't have to sacrifice your own integrity to be in a relationship. You shouldn't have to give up your own autonomy to be in a relationship. You shouldn't have to violate your own ethical principles or sacrifice your own sense of what's right and wrong just to be with your partner. If you've got to do those things, like if you feel like you've got to let go of your integrity or let go of your own values to be with somebody, Mm -hmm. probably not the right relationship for you. Could you give us some practical, for people at home who are in relationships, how could they tell if they're in a healthy relationship from some examples of some of the things we've been talking about. Just basic stuff like autonomy. How could I tell if I don't have a basic level of autonomy that I should have in a healthy relationship? So we actually wrote a relationship bill of rights that's published in the book and it's also on our website now. And I think that the relationship bill of rights is a really good place to start um, because if any one of those rights is being routinely violated, you're probably not in a healthy relationship. For example, if you feel like there are certain emotions that are unacceptable for you to feel and that you have to squelch those or not express those. Now, certainly there are healthy and unhealthy ways to express emotions. And just because you're feeling an emotion doesn't mean that somebody else is responsible for fixing it for you. At the same time, um, simply feeling the emotion should never be like a relationship transgression, right? You should be able to feel and express your emotions. You should feel like you have a choice to be in the relationship. You should not feel like you can't leave the relationship or like there will be consequences for leaving the relationship. So you shouldn't feel dependent in any way? Well, you can be dependent, but there are certainly people who are, say, financially dependent on their partners. But if you are, say, you're financially dependent on your partner, and you know that your partner will punish you financially for trying to leave the relationship. If your partner says, well, you know, if you don't stay with me, you'll be penniless and on the street and I'll make sure you never work in this town again or whatever. That is not a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly there are relationships where, where one person is financially dependent or they go through cycles of dependence that are not necessarily unhealthy. If you feel like you have no privacy if you're expected to share everything and not be able to keep anything that is just yours. And we've talked about the, finding the balance between healthy disclosure, especially in polyamory and violating someone else's privacy or violating your own privacy. For example, I want to know when you have sex with a new partner because that represents a milestone in the development of your relationship. That's probably healthy disclosure. But I want to know what positions you used and how many times you came and what her face looks like when she has an orgasm. It's probably a privacy violation, mm-hmm. you know, unless everyone involved, including the other partner, is really into that level of sharing, right? Absolutely. 
That's an interesting thing to bring up because some people, when they're talking about intimacy, they'll think of like, the more I can share, the better. But you, you've set some boundaries there where you're saying, oh, like, but if you push it a bit too far, it's not necessarily healthy. It can become unhealthy. Well, if you push it farther than someone else is comfortable with. So there are some people. So the example that I just gave, maybe Franklin wants to know that of me with my partners. And I'm actually into sharing that. Like maybe I get off on sharing that level of detail. So that's okay between us, but I also have to make sure that my partner, who I'm sharing that level of detail about, is on board with that. And they need to be able to set limits around, like, I'm going to say, well, look, I have to disclose if, if we have sex, because that's important for my other partners to know that I'm prepared to keep these other details private. Now, my partner would like to hear about them, and I'm kind of into sharing them, but I won't do it if you're not okay with that. My other partner needs to be able to set that kind of boundary, and if they don't, and I start coercing them in some way, like saying, well, but I don't have any secrets with Franklin. Why are you wanting me to keep these secrets? Or, well, aren't you comfortable with this level of intimacy? And maybe you're not really poly. And if I start doing that, then I become, I'm blackmailing my partner and I'm violating his or her privacy in a way that's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there are specific boundaries that everybody needs to have, but everybody needs to feel like they can set their own boundaries and that it's okay to do that, and they're not going to be pressured or coerced not to do that. There's one, too, that you see uh, both in poly relationships and monogamous relationships that can really be a big problem for this kind of autonomy. And that is, you are not permitted to choose your own friends. Like, I'm a guy, and you're a woman, and I feel threatened if you're friends with other guys. You're not allowed to be friends with other guys. You're not allowed to talk to anybody who is a friend of mine before we met. These are things that are that people do commonly. You're not allowed to talk to your exes. You're not allowed to talk to your exes. That's, a big yeah. one. That's extremely common. It is very common. And when you start telling other people who they are and are, are not allowed to be friends with, that's a serious red flag that you're not respecting their autonomy. In fact, um, if you talk to domestic abuse counselors or domestic violence counselors, they will say that one of the first steps down the road to abuse inevitably is limiting the abuse victims, access to other people, access to other support, controlling who they can talk to, controlling who they can be friends with. I'm looking at the Relationship Bill of Rights here, and there's one other sort of element of a, a healthy relationship that I want to bring up, and that is that you can express a differing point of view without being punished for that, and that you can say no without that creating a, a crisis. <laughs> um, so you need to feel with your partner, like you're able to express disagreements and talk through that in a healthy way without somebody feeling like they need to squelch their disagreement or feeling like they are going to be punished for disagreeing. Great. Mm -hmm. So have we talked about the most tricky ones and the most common ones when it comes to the aspects of relationships, which aren't tend not to be healthy? Most of them. There's one other one that I see, and uh, unfortunately, this can be common in polyamorous relationships, but I see it in monogamous relationships also. And that is the extreme end of the privacy thing, where somebody says, I want to see all of your text messages. I want access to your phone. I want access to your emails. I want you to give me your Facebook password. This is surprisingly common, and it's really messed up. It is very common, yeah. I've been on the receiving end of that, I guess most people have. We actually discovered a, a new term recently called technological abuse, which is exactly that. It's the demanding passwords, demanding full access to text messages. And that's a serious privacy invasion and, and also a pretty profound indicator of lack of trust. It says that there's something else going on there. 
And people who need that in order to trust their partner, if you feel like you can't trust your partner without checking on them all the time, you don't trust your partner. And if you don't trust your partner, stick a fork in it, man. The relationship's done. <laughs> exactly. Someone just needs to come out and say exactly that. If you have to check someone's phone, then you might as well move on because you know, you've already hit the bad part. The trust has been broken at that point. Um, and unless you address it, like I think it's really difficult to rebuild trust once you've broken it. Especially if they find out you're now checking the messages and that's broken trust from both sides. It becomes a real mess which is hard to fix. And you're violating other people's consent too when you do that. Right. There's other random people, you're reading their messages as well. So in terms of healthy relationships, do you think there's a lot of differences between monogamy and polyamory? Where would you say that the differences might be? I would say the, the cornerstones of healthy relationships are the same, but there are special places in polyamory where it's a lot easier to get tripped up than in monogamy. There are special traps and pitfalls. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, we're talking about relationships, right? And mm -hmm. a polyamorous relationship is still a relationship. And a lot of the same fundamental rules apply. You respect your partner. You trust your partner. You both want to be there in the relationship. Nobody's being coerced. Nobody's being cursed. Ideally, nobody's being abused. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a nice world to live in? Yeah, so we've had a fair number of people talking about polyamory on this show. And some of the monogamous listeners may feel like, oh, it's, it's getting too much. But this is one of the reasons we keep having people talking about polyamory, because basically the way I look at it, the people who are practicing polyamory have much better relationship skills because they have to, because they're working in a more extreme environment, just to put a point uh, forward like that. Every time we have someone talking about this, we're learning kind of high-end advanced skills in relationships because it's taking it to another level of complexity, simply like that. What do you think you could learn from practicing polyamory? Is this something you would suggest to people, like maybe they do at one stage of their life? I just did another interview today where we were talking about college life and how a lot of people are actually kind of doing polyamory, but they're not calling it polyamory, they're calling it hooking up. There's a lot of studies to say these days that that's what everyone's doing. But of course, it's not called polyamory and, and they don't practice it like polyamory in that way. What do you think could be the benefits from going for a phase of practicing polyamory? Um, I would be really reluctant to do it as a phase because, man, using other people to practice on and then discarding them after you've gotten to practice <laughs> is probably not so cool. I didn't really mean practicing on other people. I meant, you know, like you've decided that this is going to be something good for you, an experience you want to go through for a while. What we encourage people to do is to uh, explore their sexuality rather than just accept the culture that's been given to us in our environment today. And a lot of people are, are being just given the mainstream culture, which is not polyamorous. So I've certainly explored polyamory myself. And let's rephrase the question. Do you see any benefits to exploring polyamory, even if it's not something you're certain about? Is it something that someone should try because they may get some benefits about the, like awareness or other benefits in skills or, or things they will walk away, even if it's not for them afterwards, and it will have been a good thing rather than a big mistake? I would never say to try polyamory just to try it, just to try to build skills or whatever. Like I think that you need at some level to have some idea that, that you might want to be polyamorous, that you might enjoy doing it. And certainly most of the people who are poly, they feel like it's for them, or at least probably maybe for them. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, as Franklin said, like, you don't want to kind of play with other people's hearts and say, well, I'm going to try this thing out because I want to learn skills. And that's not, you know, what do you do with those relationships at the end of this, right? Like, and you decide you really want to be monogamous. And two, it's actually pretty hard to be polyamorous. And there are some really scary things that you have to deal with and some really intense emotions. And if you're not really into it, 
it's hard to have the motivation to get through those phases. It's hard to not say like, whoa, this is really too hard. And I'm just going to back out and go back to being monogamous, which, you know, if being poly is not what you really want to do, then being monogamous is, is fine. I mean, I think that there's a really a lot to be said for examining all of your relationship options and not choosing anything by default and being intentional about what kind of relationship you want. And certainly if you think that polyamory is appealing to you and you might want to do that, then absolutely uh, try it. I would never say try it just you can get the same skills that you'll get mm-hmm. out of being poly by having monogamous relationships as long as you really work at having good monogamous relationships. Yeah, that's actually, that's exactly the point that I was going to make is that these skills are not unique. The relationship skills you use in poly apply to monogamous relationships just as well. Now, in monogamous relationships, you can get away with not building personal security, not building self-esteem, because you don't have to be confronted with jealousy or insecurity the way you do in poly. It's okay in a monogamous relationship to say, well, I'm really jealous about the idea of you being with somebody else, because I'm afraid that means that you'll abandon me, but you're never going to be with anybody else. So I don't have to confront that fear. It's beneficial if you do, because Mm -hmm. even monogamous relationships work better if you're secure, if you have good self-esteem, if you're confident in your relationship, if you trust your partner, these are going to make any relationship better, but you can get away with not challenging them in monogamous relationships. So what happens is we say, oh, well, polyamory is more sophisticated than monogamy because in polyamory, you have to work through this stuff. And in monogamy, you don't. Whereas I say, well, if you want to have good relationships of any kind, you'll probably be well served to do that. You'll be well served to confront your own insecurities and to address your own fears and and do all of those things that poly people do. And you can always make poly friends and learn from them too, right? If monogamy is what you want, but you want to work on those communication skills and personal security and reach out to a poly community and just learn what you can from them. Mm-hmm. Get our book and read it. And you can still work on the same, developing the same skills. To clarify one thing, uh, when you're talking about polyamory, is it always relation, like intimate long-term relationships? Or is it sometimes more involved more casual things as well? Polyamory is the amour part. So it usually does refer to relationships and love and genuine connections rather than hooking up. Not necessarily long-term, though. A lot of them are long-term or have the potential to be, but... um... There are polyamorous people who also have casual sex. There are polyamorous people who also swing, for example, and you see a lot of crossover in the swinging and poly worlds. But the thing that defines the polyamory is the multiple loving. It's this idea of multiple romantic relationships at the same time, or even being open to multiple romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can be poly and be single for whatever reason. But there is a lot of overlap, uh, and there are a lot of poly people who do kind of like the casual sex. But being open to more than one romantic relationship does seem to be the defining element of poly. Great, great. All right, I'm going to ask this question. I'm not sure if you guys are just going to shoot me down, but shoot me down if you want. So a lot of people are cheating and having an affairs today in monogamous relationships. A lot of people say they're in monogamous relationships, but they're actually practicing some, some form of poly. <laughs> because they're having affairs, they're having there's even websites dedicated to this these days. Do you think it'd be beneficial for these people to learn some of the polyamorous keys? Because a lot of the polyamory is about direct communication and ironing out these things and learning to communicate directly versus the the norm route, which is to kind of avoid it and not talk about it and hope that it never gets found out. So we talk about in the book about transitioning from cheating to poly. 
yeah, certainly a lot of people who are polyamorous now have cheating in their past because they were never able to be monogamous and they were never offered an ethical alternative. The road from cheating to poly, if you want to keep the same relationships that you had when you cheated, that is a really hard one. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep the partner you cheated on and the partner you cheated with, that is a hard, hard road and very few people are able to navigate it successfully. There's a thing that can happen that I've seen. So um, there was a woman that I knew many, many, many years ago, and she was dating a friend of mine, and then she cheated on him. So he broke up with her. So she started dating another friend of mine, and she cheated on him with at least two different people that we're aware of. So he broke up with her. She got married and cheated on her husband. And last I heard, she was getting divorced or thinking about divorce or something, something, I don't know. But she had been cheating on him as well. And I talked to her years ago when she was going through all this because she knew that poly was a thing, right? And I said, well, it's obvious that you can't be monogamous because you keep cheating on all of your partners. Why won't you just be poly? And she said, well, I can't stand the idea of one of my partners having anybody else. So you kind of have to have that too. If you're going to move from cheating to poly, you really have to be able to say, I want non-monogamy and it's okay if my partners want that too. Mm -hmm. If you can't make that step, you're probably not going to be able to do it. Well, that goes straight back to healthy relationships because you're abusing all sorts of boundaries by saying, I can go and cheat in secret, but you can't. <laughs> yeah. And with regard to that road from cheating to poly specifically with the person who you cheated on and the person you cheated with, the reason that's so difficult is because you've already got seriously broken trust there. You've broken trust with the partner who you were ostensibly monogamous with. Now, not only do you have to rebuild trust with them to the point of being able to be monogamous with them again, you need to rebuild this extra trust to say, and I trust you to have other relationships, but you've already violated the trust. So it's hard to rebuild any relationship on a foundation of broken trust, but especially a poly one. On the other hand, if you're a fair partner, the person you cheated with, uh, you, if you want to stay with them, well, they've also violated your partner's trust. They've also trampled all over your partner's boundaries. And so now you want that person in your life and in your partner's life. And your partner has to be able to fully consent to that. And, you know, a lot of people who have cheated, I've seen this, they discover polyamory and they say, oh, now I can legitimize my affair. I'll just be poly, right? Well, unfortunately, you've already, you've already broken trust. You've already violated boundaries. And you've probably already violated consent as well because your partner wants that partner is no longer giving informed consent or they're no longer giving consent. You've already done all that. So it can work. Don't hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. I mean, you might be better off just if you... if you. It's going to be rocky. So you might want to just reset and restart somewhere. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And understand that your partner who you cheated on absolutely has the right to say, no, I don't want this. I think that's an important point because if they've entered into a monogamous and that's their expectation, they may... If they feel a bit dependent on you, you know, they're quite attached to you, they may feel pressured to go forward in this polyamorous new vision that you've provided with them, although they're not really down for it. They're not interested in it and they're just going through with it and it's going to pop up later and it's not a healthy relationship because that's not what they signed up for. Yep. And when that happens on either side, when you've got one person pressuring another into polyamory or you have somebody who's polyamorous and their partner is pressuring them to be monogamous, that never leads anywhere good. Right. So we had an ex-porn director on the podcast a little while ago called Dave Pounder. He had some um, pretty straight views about things. And he felt that most women didn't want to be going to swinging clubs. And they were doing it mostly because of their partners. <laughs> do, do you have a counter, a counter <laughs> offer opinion? 
That has <laughs> so I've been sort of peripherally involved in the swing community for a long time because they tend to host the best parties. Good to know. There is a saying in the swing club that I belong to in Tampa, and that is men drag their wives to their first swing event and then have to drag their wives away from them. Uh-huh. Because what happens is the swing community is really all about consent and boundaries. It's very, very strongly enshrined, at least in the swing clubs that I've seen, in the sort of cultural ethos. And the women are the ones who get to say no, and that no gets respected. And that means that a lot of women are like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So their husbands convince them, oh, come on, honey, let's try. And they go there. And now they're in this environment where what they say matters and their consent is important and their boundaries are taken seriously. And they have the freedom to start exploring, to start expressing themselves sexually, to try new things, knowing that everybody around them is going to take care of them. Everybody around them is going to respect their consent and their boundaries. And they're like, wow, this is awesome. And then their husbands are like, honey, honey, it's getting late. And they're like, no, we want to stay. But it has definitely been my experience that a lot of women, once they start exploring swinging, are very enthusiastic about it. That's great. I love to hear different opinions. It's, it's really interesting. It does make it difficult because I'm not sure who to believe. And it means I have to now enter the world of swingers if I really want to figure it out myself. But, you know, I love, I love to hear different opinions and get different pictures of reality there. So let's talk a little bit about security and insecurity in relationships. What do you feel is important when it comes to these topics? Wow. I don't know if there is talking a little bit about insecurity. Yeah. Um, the first thing it's I It's not think, optional. It's, oh, yeah. Working on your personal security and self-esteem is not optional. Most important thing. So you're saying that everyone is insecure? Well, no, what I'm saying is not that everyone is insecure. Franklin isn't insecure. <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, Franklin. But I am. Um, but just that you don't get to opt out of the personal work involved in becoming secure if you're not ready. Um, it's not something that you can sort of say, oh, well, I'll do that later. Or maybe it's OK for me to just coast along and and have my partners protect my insecurity and you have to you have to work on it because it will become toxic in your relationships and it will it doesn't just affect the person who's insecure it affects everyone around them so it is a loving thing to do to work on your self-esteem and personal security and the way you start with that is really surprisingly simple and we never teach anybody just believe your partner. Yeah. Your partner says, honey, I love you and I want to be with you. And it seems like we sort of have this attitude that uh, good things that our partner says, compliments or positive, constructive things our partner says bounce right off of us, but bad things stick, mm -hmm. right? And that, I think, goes to this insecurity. It's easier for us to believe negative things than positive things. It's easy to believe that our partner doesn't want to be with us and hard to believe that our partner does. So when your partner says, I love you and I want to be with you, Believe them. That's where it starts. That is some very down-to-earth advice. And this is good stuff, guys. Yeah. Thank you. And beyond that, there's a whole chapter in the book <laughs> about all the self-work that you need to do. And that chapter references other books. Because for some, I mean, certainly for someone like me, I've struggled my entire life with feelings of unworthiness and insecurity. And I've seen how it's affected my relationships. But certainly since I've become poly, that's become even more clear to me. And I've been able to see how my own insecurity doesn't just hurt me, it hurts my partners. And um, for someone like me, it's a lifelong process and I never really get to stop working on it. I've gone through phases when I have felt very secure and have experienced high feelings of worthiness. And then I have to keep on with those practices of things like self-affirmation and mindfulness and practicing gratitude are all things that are very helpful to me 
uh, in maintaining that. And just even feeling worthy is a practice that I have to maintain. Great. So, I mean, those are some good tools that are slowly becoming more popular in mainstream society for all sorts of reasons. People who want more productivity, want to do better at work and relationships now as well. So I do mindfulness, I do mantra-based meditation, I do gratitude meditation, right? They call these these are great tools to help us develop more security and more clarity. So I'm you know, really glad you pointed that out. I feel those are great tools too. Are there some other tools that you've seen that are useful? So I had a lover many years ago, and she had a really interesting approach. She said, I will never date anybody who's never had their heart broken, because it's after you've had your heart broken that you can really see the quality of your person, right? The, the quality of your character. I was in a relationship, and I talk about this in the memoir, I was in a relationship in the 90s that I was extremely insecure. And because I felt insecure and I felt jealous, I totally destroyed that relationship. And this was a person who really, really loved me. And this was somebody that I really loved. And we have not spoken to each other for decades because I did this. And I was completely devastated. I was heartbroken. It took me years to get through that. But what I found out from that it was two things. Number one, I can lose somebody that I love and I'll still be okay. And that actually makes a big, big difference because now it becomes easier to be more secure. And the other thing that I learned that really made a difference is that, you know what? People have the right to leave me. I was jealous. I was insecure. I treated her poorly. She was right to leave. She had the right to do it because all healthy relationships are voluntary and consensual. And as soon as I start treating her badly, she left. And what I learned from that is that if I want my partner to be with me, I don't get that by controlling my partner. I get that by being somebody my partner wants to be with. And so the way to become secure is not to tell my partner what to do or to make her stay with me. The way to be secure is to be the best version of myself, to treat my partner well, to be compassionate, to do all of these things that make me a person that my partner wants to be with. I will say that uh, one of the resources that was the most helpful for me in cultivating a personal sense of worthiness and security is a book called The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. Very slender little book, um, incredibly powerful, and I think incredibly valuable for anyone who's, who's struggling with insecurity. Thanks. Thanks. Love references. Book references are always very welcome. So frankly, you just brought off the theme of jealousy, which is obviously one of the really difficult things to deal with. How do you work with jealousy in relationships, either in yourself, as in your case, or in your partner? Mm, that's, that is always the bugaboo, right? Everybody wants to know, well, if you're going to be poly, can you be jealous or do you have to be immune to it? And I don't think there's anybody who's immune to jealousy. I will say that right off the bat. I, I have heard people say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm great at being poly because I've never been jealous and I will never be jealous. And I'm like, that's kind of like saying I will never be angry or I will never be sleepy. You know, mm -hmm. these are feelings. People have them. Yeah. And usually when someone says, I don't get jealous or I've never been jealous, I, I hear that as well. I've never been jealous yet. <laughs> and when because I am, there is usually yeah, something that you just haven't there. You have a trigger somewhere for your jealousy. You just have been fortunate enough not to stumble across it yet. Yes. I'm glad you pointed, brought up the point of a trigger. As you say, some people might go through for a long time and, and not feel any jealousy. And then one day they'll come across one person or one kind of situation, which just yep. blows it up. That happened to me. And I destroyed my relationship when it happened. Yeah. I think that believing you're immune to jealousy can actually be really problematic because then when the jealousy hits you, you'll think it's something else. And uh, which is what happened to Franklin. Mm -hmm. I thought I understood what jealousy was. I, thought, I mean, I've experienced jealousy. I, I thought I had full grasp on how it affected me. And 
recently encountered a situation that caused feelings in me that I had never experienced before. And, you know, I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, I just wrote a book about polyamory. (laughs) (laughs) How can I be feeling this? How can this be like this bad when I know all of this stuff about security and communication and when I don't even know how to talk about this? It's so awful. So that has been um, really just involving a whole lot of talking and processing and reassurance and trying to understand what happened and why was this such a powerful trigger for me? Why was I so afraid? So did you talk with the partner with which the jealousy was triggered or did you talk with other people to try and figure it out first? How did you, when you say talking and communication? Well, it was Franklin that Mm -hmm. it happened with. So we've been he and I have been. So you're both here. Yeah, <laughs> both been. It's been a process that he and I have been working through for about the last month or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a thing that can happen where people will say, "Well, I would never be polyamorous because I'm a jealous person," which mm-hmm. is really kind of weird because you're you're staking your identity on a feeling. You're not saying I am a person who sometimes gets jealous. You're like I'm a jealous person, which is kind of a strange thing to do. And the the reality is, you know, what would we say to somebody who said? Well, I would never get into a relationship because what if I feel sad? We'd think, okay, that's a bizarre thing to say, right? And so people say, well, I would never get into a relationship because what if I feel jealous? Well, yeah, you're going to feel sad. You're going to feel jealous. You're going to feel happy. These are normal things. What you do is when you feel the feeling, you understand that this feeling is not you. It's not your entire world. It doesn't define you. Feelings are transitory. They will come and go. And that's okay because that's what emotions do. They don't have to define you, and you can talk about them. And that's another thing we don't really teach people is you talk about your feelings, and it's a great way to work with your partner to get through them. Like, if you're feeling jealous, what do you do about it? Well, you do the hardest thing that you can possibly do, which is talk to your partner and say, hey, I'm feeling jealous, because jealousy Mm -hmm. really wants you to to be quiet about it, right? It doesn't want you to acknowledge it. That's very insightful, yeah. If you're the person who your partner comes to and says, I'm feeling jealous, what do you do? Well, you don't blame them. You don't shame them. Well, how could you be feeling this thing? Because people don't have a switch on their heart. You know, you just or tell can't. them, don't tell them they're not enlightened enough or they're not poly oh, enough Jesus. or, or yeah. I don't feel this. So why do you feel this? That's another thing that happens. Don't do that. Just yeah. don't like, don't, if your partner comes to you with a feeling, don't ever judge them for having that feeling. They, they have no control over it. And it's not a character flaw, even if it is inconvenient for you. Mm-hmm. So you you be compassionate, right? You say, well, people feel things and let's talk about what's causing this feeling and what can we do to work together to build a bridge to where you're not feeling this thing. I hope I've been doing that well. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually about to say that one of the things that has been, this is very personal because it's quite recent, but as we've been working through this issue that that we've had, I think the thing that has been the single most helpful thing for me is that Franklin has never once judged me no matter how big and terrifying and ugly these feelings of jealousy have been, it's never been like, we'll stop feeling this or why are you feeling this? Or, you know, God, aren't you over it yet? Which I've said to myself, (laughs) but he's never said to me. So, and that has been tremendously helpful in, because I'm able to look and see repeatedly, okay, yes, he does love me. He does support me. He does want to be with me. I am safe in this relationship. And, and that has probably help things be a lot better than they could have been otherwise. Yay. Yeah, it sounds like you were lucky for it to happen with Franklin. I mean, who better than the co-writer of your book about all of this stuff? (laughs) 
But I have to say, I have felt some panic, like, oh my God, what if I'm not poly enough for Franklin? (laughs) (laughs) If I feel jealousy, am I not poly enough for the co-author of more than two? (laughs) My (laughs) co-author. Well, we feel what we feel. Yeah. Moving on to other stuff like the the poly frameworks, and you introduced basically a bunch of tools for polyamory in in your book. And some of these were the frameworks you introduced. You have a chapter on that on how. And so my question there was like how adding structure to relationships can help. Because I saw what you were doing there was basically introducing some concepts which make it easier to communicate about things via this structure. What would be the most useful tools you see in that set? There's quite a few of them you introduce in that section. But which ones would be the, the couple of most useful ones you see and how are they beneficial? Number one is definitely communication. I mean, if you can't do that, you can't have a relationship of any sort. It doesn't matter if you're poly or mono or whatever. You're, it's just not going to work. So one of those is direct communication, which means saying exactly what you mean without hidden meanings and without expecting your partner to hear things from subtext or hear things that you aren't saying. But it also means hearing exactly what your partner is saying. So listening to their words and not listening for hidden subtext or reading meanings into their words. And when people talk about direct communication, they often are referring to the speaking part of direct communication, but not to the listening part of direct communication. We found that the listening part is just as important. So say what you mean, but also assume that your partner is saying what they mean as well. And don't try to put words in their mouth. That can be really hard for people who are accustomed to passive communication. It's very hard not to hear hidden meanings, even when there aren't any. And another one is um, that honesty is not just about not lying. It's not just about giving a direct response to questions. Uh, It's also about disclosing those things that you think might be important to your partner without having to be prompted or the response, well, you didn't ask about it is not necessarily a good response if you have withheld information from your partner that you had reason to know was important to them at the time. Yeah. My friend who was um, cheating on all of her partners and sort of bouncing from relationship to relationship, I asked her once, well, don't you think it's wrong that you're not telling your partner that you're having sex with this other guy? And she said, well, he didn't ask and I didn't specifically say I wasn't cheating. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I'm sorry, this is not this is not cool. And one of the things that we I think we talk about in the book is um, a good liar can tell lies that are mostly truth. A masterful liar can lie without uttering a single falsehood. If you are misleading or concealing things that you believe would be relevant to your partner, you're lying. Right. So then, I mean, then it goes to like the typical affair situations, cheating situations where you're making sure that you don't have lipstick on you or these kind of things so that the questions never get asked in the first place, but you're actually making an effort to be deceitful. Yeah. Yeah. And you can absolutely cheat in polyamorous relationships. Cheating is any violation of the relationship agreement between you. So for example, a, a common form of cheating is when someone will start having uh, unbarriered sex with a partner and not disclose to their other partner that they stopped using barriers. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> That's a huge frightening deal, Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing. Going back to the, the toolkits and, and frameworks, communication, um, I would say that working on personal security is, is absolutely an indispensable tool. Another thing in communication that can be a poly pitfall is triangular communication. Mm. So expecting one person to convey a message to another person. Now you can see how this can cause all sorts of chaos in a situation where someone has multiple partners. So 
if there is an issue between you and someone else, don't try to put someone in the middle. And there's all kinds of ways that triangular communication can happen. You might try to use your, say, Franklin has five partners. Those are called my metamorphs. So your partners, other partners are your metamorphs. So I might try to use Franklin to resolve an issue with one of my metamors, or I might try to use one of my metamors to try to resolve an issue with my other metamors. All of that is triangular communication. Don't do that either. Yeah. Or Franklin might try to use me to resolve an issue with one of his partners. Um, that's yeah, another. That would there's, be a mistake. there's all kinds of, of triangles that can get set up that are problematic. So that goes back to, you know, communicating directly with the person who the issue is with as much as possible. That all makes a lot of sense. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. One of the pieces I saw in that chapter was vetoes. What kind of things do you think vetoes, because uh, veto sounds a little bit negative in some ways. So I'm just wondering, like, what are the healthy circumstances for use of vetoes? Well, we're not fans of veto. <laughs> and we have a whole chapter on it. And one of the reasons we spend a whole chapter on it is that we, we really want to discourage people from using it. But it's a very, very tempting tool for people to reach for. And so we felt like it needed more space than just, well, don't use this. So we talk about uh, what veto is, why people use it, how it can go wrong, uh, what the ethical problems are with it, what the practical problems are with it, and then what some alternatives to it are. So a veto is, you'll hear the word used a number of different ways. The way we use it in the book is an agreement with an existing partner that you may unilaterally end one of their other relationships without discussion. And this was something I actually had in my relationship with my now ex-wife. And it's actually a key component to the reason she is an ex-wife. So she had wanted to feel secure in her relationship with me. And she believed that the way that she could feel secure is to say, if your relationships start to become too threatening to me, or if you get involved with somebody that makes me feel threatened or that I don't want you involved with, I can say, Franklin, you have to break up with this person and you'll do it. And that was the agreement we had. What we never counted on was how devastating that is to the existing relationship. So for many, many years, she never used a veto. And then she finally did. She vetoed somebody I had been involved with for years. And she said, I don't want you to be in this relationship. You have to end this relationship. And then later she said, it's not enough that you ended this relationship. I don't want you ever to speak to this person again. I want you to end the friendship. And that's caused an enormous problem between me and my ex-wife, just her using this veto, because what you don't think about when you're thinking about, oh yeah, you know, veto makes me feel really secure. When you veto your partner, you're breaking your partner's heart. Your partner might be in love with somebody else, and then you veto them. You tell them, you have to end this relationship, you have to break your heart, you have to break your other partner's heart. Breaking your partner's heart is not a good long-term relationship strategy. Now, there's also something called that people call sometimes a screening veto, which is I get the right to say who you can start a relationship with. So if you want to start a relationship with someone, you have to come to me and, and get my permission to do that. That is, I think, in many ways, a, a less damaging form of veto than the I can end a relationship form of veto. It still has some problems because what it's doing is it's privileging your judgment over your partner's judgment and who they can become involved with. We say that a good alternative to uh, a right of veto is a right of consultation. So if you trust your partner and you trust each other's judgment, then sure, I might come to my partner early on and say, I'm thinking about dating this person. What do you think about that? And then he might tell me, 
that he has some concerns and I can take that into account in making my own decision. And, and that may sway me in favor of not pursuing the relationship or I may decide to pursue the relationship anyway. But I think if you are honoring your partner's autonomy and agency and the value of their own judgment and their right to make their own decisions, I think that ultimately the decision whether to start a new relationship with a, a given person should still be in their hands. But certainly it is good practice to consult with your existing partners about what you are thinking about or planning on doing and finding out how that's going to affect them and how they feel about that, because then you can make a more informed decision. Mm -hmm. But you have to, too, to be able to uh, let your partners make their own mistakes. You might see, oh, this new relationship is probably going to run off the rails and it's probably going to be a really bad idea. But my partner really, really wants to pursue it. And you know what? My partner has the right to make mistakes. And I have to say that my husband has near 100% accurate predictive ability as to how my various relationships are going to go. I never listen to him. (laughs) 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 And he's actually, recently, he's stopped informing me in advance unless I explicitly ask because I know know he won't listen to him. And there was one relationship that was a spectacular disaster. And I, and he said later, yeah, I saw that coming. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And he's like, you wouldn't have listened to me. <laughs> so, so apparently I'm someone who needs to make my own mistakes. And he just sort of sits back and lets it happen. But I have made more of a point of, of getting his input <laughs> lately since I realized that it's possible he could have protected me from something really, really awful if I had actually asked his opinion and paid attention. But the thing is, is like, we don't, want to see our partners hurt. And sometimes we do see train wrecks coming. And it's hard to, I mean, certainly we can warn our partners, tell them what concerns we have. um, And it's hard to see them dive headlong into something that we think is going to hurt them. But sometimes they, for whatever reason, they just need to do that. And they're not children. We can't really stop them from having the life experiences that they're going to have. And maybe there's something they have to learn from it. They do say um, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> yes, it's certainly, it's certainly very true. So and that strikes me as one of the most tricky situations when you just brought up, because if you care about someone, you, you obviously want to help. And it can. I think a child analogy is pretty good, right? Because parents are often trying to help their kids and give them advice and stuff when the kids often are doing their teenage thing or whatever, and they're just going to rebel against it. So you can kind of see how that works in, in relationships as well. But it's kind of difficult to stand back and, and just, just watch it. It does strike me as a really tricky one. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and certainly I want to add that you do have your right to set personal boundaries around how that relationship is going to affect you. Like if your partner is in a relationship with someone who's breaking up with them every six weeks and getting back to the, together with them two weeks later, uh, and this has happened five times, you have a right to say, you know what, if you are going to continue you can't come to me anymore crying over this relationship. I can't deal with it. You've got to deal with that on your own. I'm not going to be your your support person for this anymore. That's a boundary that you have a right to set. You do have the right to say, you know, what comes into your space and what you're willing to tolerate in your own relationships. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that makes great sense. And again, the boundaries is about yourself, not the other person. She's saying, I, you know, I don't want to keep hearing about this all the time. You, I don't want to keep hearing about this problem you have. We've kind of spoken about it and you know how I feel about it already. Right. Yeah. The last topic I just wanted to go over was how to initiate a polyamorous relationship from some different scenarios. We talked a little bit about the cheating scenario, which is is probably one you're going to say that's the worst situation ever to try and start a polyamorous relationship from or relationships. 
What are some of the more normal ones where people find themselves in a situation and it makes sense to move it to polyamory or maybe they want to move it to polyamory? And are there any tips on that? There's a whole chapter in the book on uh, opening from a couple. So there's two approaches. One is you're in an existing relationship and that relationship becomes polyamorous or two, you're single and you decide that you're only going to pursue polyamorous relationships. And those have very different approaches to them. Mm -hmm. It's always easier to open a relationship when there is no other potential partner on the horizon. Because if there's already someone in the picture, even someone as a potential love interest, it's hard for the non-initiating partner not to see that person as a threat because the status quo is changing and it's tied to them and somehow it's hard not to see that person as responsible, even if there hasn't been cheating and, and no relationship happened. Right. Because then I think they would see it as coming from the other person rather than their partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they can also see it as, well, if I say no, what's going to happen? My partner wants to be with this other person over there. If I say no, I'm not open to polyamory. Is my partner going to cheat? Yeah. Is my partner going to leave me for this other partner? So then it's hard to make a free choice about it. Um, Of course, you know, we don't always get the ideal situation. Sometimes there is another person in the picture, but it's always good to have the conversation as early as possible and ideally when there isn't somebody else there. So, and I think you just sit down and, and, I mean, you can broach the idea of polyamory with them and say, hey, what do you think of this relationship style? Is this something you would ever be open to? And see how that goes. And if you think you get a virulent no reaction, then you know where you know where you stand with that. Or if they say, huh, that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure I'm, I'd be into that, but we could talk about it. Then you can go from there. Right. A non-response would probably be fear. That would be a negative thing. And yeah. Avoidance. So it's it probably means no. Yeah, the thing about that is that you can't you can't assume a yes, right? You're going to have to really listen to what your partner says and you're gonna to have to respect what they say. And if you have a partner who wants monogamy, that is absolutely valid and it is not cool to try to coerce somebody into polyamory. People have the right to choose the relationship models that work for them, and for most people that's probably going to be monogamy. And that's totally okay. But then you have a choice to make, right? If it's really, really, really important to you to be polyamorous and it's really, really, really important to your partner to be monogamous, then both of you are going to have to be honest about that. And both of you are going to really have to sit down and decide if you're going to be able to make this relationship work. And there are um, relationships where one partner is monogamous and the other partner is polyamorous. Those relationships are very hard work. We've seen lots of them not last. Uh, We have seen some of them last. They're not completely doomed, <laughs> they can, but they are a lot of work. They're a lot, a lot more work even than, than ordinary polyamorous relationships. So for me, um, I've never been in a monogamous relationship at all. So I've come to it from a very, very different place that Eve came to polyamory from and probably from what most people came to polyamory from. And I've always been honest with anybody that I'm interested in. Look, I am not monogamous and this is who I am. Um, if you're OK with polyamory, that's awesome. Let's talk. We'll go out to dinner. If you are not okay with polyamory, that's also awesome, but you know, we're not going to be able to date. Is that like, say you meet a woman in a bar, typical situation? Is it before you ask for her number or something? Is that a conversation you have, or is it something after you've got taken a number? Oh yeah, that conversation has happened way before we get to the point of me saying, yeah, I'm interested in you. What's your number? Or would you like to go out for drinks? Yeah. So people are like, well, how do you bring up polyamory? Well, it's actually pretty easy for me because I wear two wedding rings. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Are you double married or is that more of a, a signal? I am actually not married legally. I have had um, commitment ceremonies with two of my partners. So we've exchanged rings, but I have not actually gotten legally married to either one of them. 
But one of the things that I'll do is I'm always very open about who I am. I never hide anything. I don't try to conceal it. I'm not closeted. There's a, a subway shop right across the, uh, the street from me. It's a sandwich shop. And so I go in there all the time and I get sandwiches. And I was in there one day and the person who makes my sandwiches um, recognized me because I'm in there all the time. And she was like, oh, yeah, did you do anything interesting this weekend? And I said, yeah, me and my girlfriend went out and we saw that movie, The Happening. And then afterward, her other boyfriend and my other girlfriend and I all went out to dinner together. And by the way, that movie sucks. Don't waste your money. So already before we ever have any other kind of conversation, she knows, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm open to everybody that I am not monogamous. So if I'm talking to somebody in a bar and we've just met, I'll be like, oh, you know, how's it going? And, you know, I, during the course of that conversation, I might say, uh, yeah, one of my girlfriends and I um, really like this bar or, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just in town visiting one of my girlfriends and then I'm going home to uh, the girlfriend that I live with. And it's obvious I'm not monogamous. So are you saying these things on purpose to make sure there's a clear uh, signal or are you basically just being 100% natural and you're just talking about your life and it's, you're not even thinking about it? Yeah, I'm not trying to signal anybody. I'm just talking about my life the same way other people would talk about their lives. I want to mention that you don't always have precisely that opportunity to reveal that information over the course of a conversation, especially if it's a exchange of numbers in a bar kind of thing. But way back when I was first getting the hang of this whole polyamory thing, um, I met a guy at a concert. And it was your typical scenario. We sat next to each other. We flirted. Uh, we exchanged uh, numbers or email addresses um, at the end of the concert. And then, you know, we went home and set up a, a date. And um, and I didn't tell him that I was married and that I was poly. <laughs> and this was before I had another partner besides my husband. And, and I really didn't know, like, when am I supposed to disclose and how? And so... I went ahead and went out on the date and during dinner, I didn't actually come out and say, by the way, you should know I'm polyamorous and I'm married and et cetera, et cetera. I just sort of slipped into the conversation, the fact that I had a husband and by the way, we had an open relationship and, you know, how's your food? <laughs> and he excused himself and went to the toilet. <laughs> well, I could see his face changed and, you know, he was like, and he sort of was like grappling with this new information. And I justified it to myself as like, we never said we were on it. I didn't say this out loud, but what I was thinking is like, oh my God, I've pulled a bait and switch on him. I totally told him sooner, but then I justified it. Well, I never said I wasn't married. I never said this was a date. I never, but of course he had every reason, the social norms gave him every reason to expect that. So I brought that up with my poly group later on and people said, yeah, sometime between getting his number and going out on the date, I would have disclosed that to him. He should not have had to show up at the date not knowing that yet. So if you don't have the opportunity in the course of the conversation where you're, you first meet, it's a good idea before the next meeting to say, by the way, you should know I'm polyamorous. Um, I have X other partners. They all know that this date is happening and they're okay with it. And if you're not familiar with polyamory, I'm happy to talk to you more about it on our date and answer any questions you may have. But give them a chance to opt out before actually turning up at the date. Mm -hmm. I try to that in the bud uh, myself by I have a policy that I won't date anybody who's not already polyamorous. You know, and a lot of people are like, oh, my God, well, you know, there are not very many poly people in the world. Like there are seven billion people in the world. But how many of them are poly? You want a partner who's polyamorous. And I'm also kinky. So I want a partner who's kinky. So they're like, well, you know, one percent of all of the people out there might be open to poly and, and be in a position for a new relationship. And then one percent of them are also kinky. So how can you ever find anybody? And I'm like, well, 1% of 1% of the world's population is still 70,000 people. How much time could I possibly have? <laughs> and then you have long distance relationships. So you're accessing the whole, the whole world, right? 
Yeah, thanks, guys. That's very clear. In terms of the situation where you're meeting someone, something I've done in the past is I'll bring up the topic of like, oh, so um, like, when was your last boyfriend? I'll just bring up the topic. And then naturally, I feel like that they're going to naturally ask, you know, about my girlfriend and then the subject will come up. So in a situation where it hasn't come up, that's something that I've used and it seems to work as well. And it just kind of kind of comes out naturally afterwards. Uh, I don't know what you guys think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always helpful when Franklin was saying it can just come up naturally in the conversation and you can see where, where people are at and they know where you're at. I also think that as various forms of non-monogamy are becoming more and more understood and accepted and polyamory is everybody knows the word polyamory now. And that wasn't the case five years ago. Dan Savage is off promoting the idea of monogamish relationships. And I think I would like to see us move as a culture more and more towards a place where it's normal to have the relationship style conversation on the first date. And you don't necessarily show up at the first date assuming that this person is monogamous mm-hmm. or anything else. But it's like, well, we are all aware that there are multiple forms that, that a relationship can take. So we need to talk about what our assumptions are and what we want. And so you can just sit down and say, as you're talking about the usual stuff that you talk about, you can also say, so I prefer monogamous relationships or I'm polyamorous. And that's not like a bombshell at the date. That's something really weird that you weren't expecting. It's just sort of part of the normal conversation. There are some cultures, some subcultures that are there now. Certainly mainstream culture is not there yet. One of the problems that I have encountered with people who are like, uh, particularly first exploring polyamory, but this happens sometimes with people who are experienced with polyamory too, is They'll say, I don't want to talk about polyamory up front because I don't want to scare the other person off. Well, if the other person is not okay with the kind of relationship (laughs) you're offering, yeah. That's a good point. (laughs) To build on your point, that is often the things that we hear from guys in coaching and that they're concerned about bringing these kinds of topics up because they'll lose the girl that they're, they're interested in. I think what happens there is kind of a scarcity model of relationships. You can approach the idea of relationships from a couple of different directions. There's the scarcity model. It's, oh my God, it's so hard to find a woman. It's so hard to find a relationship. And it's so difficult to get somebody even under the best of circumstances that now if I'm going to talk about polyamory or I'm going to talk about anything else like BDSM or kick or whatever, it's just going to be impossible. And then there's the abundance model where you say, well, we live in a world of 7 billion people. Opportunities for connection are all around us. There are people all around us that we can love. There are interesting and amazing people just completely surrounding us. So opportunities for love and connection are abundant. Whichever one you believe tends to become true. Because what happens is if you believe that relationships are scarce and it's really hard to find relationships, you can start behaving like you're desperate or like you're insecure, and that's unattractive. So opportunities do become scarce. When you have an abundance model, you're relaxed, you're confident, you're not like, oh my God, this is never going to work. This is never going to work, right? So you're not in that mind space. And that lets you be more casual, more relaxed, more confident. And that's really attractive. Yeah, I see your point, you know, um, totally get that. And I think also just to tie with that, it also tends to be that the people who live in this world of abundance tend to be more social, tend to be more outgoing, tend to be meeting more new people. So there's more opportunities coming into their life more just because the number of people they're meeting because, you know, their life is more organized that way. Which isn't to say that, you know, there aren't very real problems like depression and social anxiety and things that sort of make it harder to cultivate an abundance model. But I still think it's even in those circumstances, it's not helpful to try to 
essentially be someone else for a potential mate um, because you're going to run, that's going to trip you up at some point. And it's still helpful to try to go through the mental exercises, even if you don't personally feel them. It's still helpful to try to practice that mindset as much as possible. I have found, going back to the idea of security, that even practicing things that you don't necessarily feel can improve your life because it improves the way people respond to you. Mm-hmm. Even if you inside feel like you're just going through the motions. So I don't believe in abundance, but I'm going to act as though relationships are abundant. Even that can help. Great. Thank you so much for all the information you shared with us today. It's, it is really practical stuff and there's a lot of insights I didn't even thought of before. So I uh, really appreciate it. There's a few questions to round off. Uh, what are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? The website, morethan2.com, is a huge polyamory resource that Franklin has built up over the last two decades. And there's a blog there that you can follow. We have a Facebook page, More Than Two Book. Franklin and I are both on Twitter, Franklin Vo and Eve Rickert. Our Twitter handles are just our names. And then, of course, there's the book, More Than Two, and Franklin's forthcoming memoir, The Game Changer. Mm-hmm. And I also keep a blog on LiveJournal. I think I'm one of the last people who's still there. Uh, it's at tacit, T-A-C-I-T dot LiveJournal.com. Excellent. And there is a G plus page for more than two as well. Oh, there is. Yes, that's yeah, right. And a YouTube channel. Okay, great. So we'll put all of those in the show notes. Uh, if you think of anything else, like feel free to send those on and we'll put them there too. Is there anyone besides yourself you would recommend for high quality advice in this area? Um, like for interviewing or for, uh, just in general, people you respect, maybe you've learned from them, or maybe you just appreciate their work and what they put out there as well. I quite enjoy the blog, Philopoly, net. Peppermint is a, an educator who has a website that is quite informative with actually lots of good articles for men mm-hmm. on it, especially, um, who else would you suggest? Who's got a really good pepper's blog is amazing. Yeah, definitely. Um, Oh, Cutting Minks, Polyamory Weekly. Yes. There's a podcast called Polyamory Weekly. She's great. Yes, she's coming up in an episode. I interviewed her a couple of weeks back, actually. Yeah, yes. she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> it was a really fun episode also. Well, thanks for those, guys. Just this last question. We ask everyone this question. What are your top three recommendations to uh, men who are studying, want to improve their relationships in, in life as fast as possible? Um, be confident or at least be willing to face fear of rejection and approach people you're interested in, even if it scares the holy living bejesus out of you. Because one of the things that can happen is somebody can say, oh, well, how can I subtly tell somebody that I'm interested in her? You know, how can I be really, really subtle about it? And that doesn't actually work. And while you're sitting there trying to figure that out, the person who walks up and says, you know, I think you're really interesting. I'd like to get to know you better. Would you like to go out to drinks with me? is going to be the one who succeeds. And this is something that I do. Like if I, if I meet somebody or if I have a crush on somebody, my policy is I will walk up to them and I'll say, wow, I have a crush on you. Or, hey, I think you're really interesting. Would you like to go out to dinner with me? And it never stops being scary. People are always like, oh yeah, people who are confident, they can do that without being scared. No, you can't, but you do it anyway. And that is what works. That's your number one? That's my number one. Okay, I'll give a number two from a woman's perspective. Women are people. (laughs) And we're not a separate species. We're not from another planet. Um, We're not a puzzle to be solved. Um, We're just people. And the people who have the most success with women, I think, are those who are able to interact with with women just as people. Mm -hmm. 
See, now you just stole my number three because that was going to be my oh, next no. one. Yeah, you interact with people. You could fight over number three. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to number two? A lot of men that I've talked to are like, well, you know, I can talk to other men, but I just can't talk to women. Well, that's because you're not really seeing men and women as being people. If you talk to people as people rather than I can talk to men, but I can't talk to women, then that really helps. That's a great point. Well, you you're could, a guy. You, I know. You just totally stole my number three. So now I'm going to have to come up with a number three, aren't I? Don't be afraid of somebody saying no, because people have the right to say no. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. It's not a reflection on you. There have been times when I've gone up to somebody and I've said, hey, I'm really interested in you. Would you like to go out? And she says, no, that doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. That doesn't mean that I am unworthy. It doesn't mean that I'm unattractive. It doesn't mean anything about me. It's just she doesn't feel that connection with me. And that's totally cool because there are people who do. It doesn't mean anything about her either. It doesn't mean that she's ungrateful for your attention or that she's mean or that she's a bitch or whatever. It's just not into you. And that's cool. It's her right to not be into you. Mm -hmm. And this is a great point to remind people not to attribute too much from the small interactions that we have. That's certainly been my experience, like men in general, when we've coached them and so on, tend to read a lot more into a situation and actually occur like a tiny event. And sometimes it's got absolutely nothing to do with what's going on. And it could be something to do with the environment, you know, all sorts of things that they haven't seen. So those are great points. Thank you so much for sharing your information and the time you've spent on the podcast today, Franklin, Eve. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been awesome. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.